Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, December 2nd, 2012. My name is Leah. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and your moderator for this morning. Today's topic is abstinence, which we learn about from the doctor's opinion. The doctor's opinion, which serves as a preface to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, is the foundation of the whole big book and the entire fellowship. Of course, an essential part of the beginning of the recovery process is the separation and elimination of our binge foods and being honest about both past and present binge foods and eating behaviors. Here to speak about abstinence and the elimination of the substances which trigger us and the topics in the doctor's opinion are three recovered compulsive overeaters. Today we welcome Kathy and Marjorie and Eddie C. to the line to share on their experience and we will also offer a question and answer period to follow. And to begin, we welcome Kathy from Boston to the line. Good morning, Kathy. Thank you, Leah, and thank you for inviting me. My name is Kathy, and I weigh three measured meals uh, a day. I commit them to my sponsor. I write them down, and I eat only what I commit. And um, I have to say I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to share with you about my abstinence today um, because it's been a long journey uh, to get to a point where I am entirely comfortable and without conflict about eating my way and measured meals each day um, no matter what. Um, I want to give you a little bit of my history. I came to the 12-step rooms in 1993 and at that time um, did not have a lot of weight to lose, but I was um, uh, experiencing binging and purging, and I had taken uh, a leave of absence from my job, actually a sabbatical, which is uh, built into the kind of work I do, and my goal for that sabbatical was to lose the 15 pounds um, that I had carried around with me extra weight, and I'm a small person. Um, and I found, I thought that eliminating work stress from my life would enable me to stick to a food plan, but uh, I discovered that um, my disease, although I didn't call it that, uh, persisted. And by the end of that year, I was convinced um that I had a problem, although I didn't think it was a big problem because I wasn't 100 pounds overweight. Um, It was a bigger problem than for some who only have 10 or 15 extra pounds because I am diabetic. And what I began to know as I began to peel off the layers of denial is that I was killing myself with food. Every time I overate, I would put um, enormous stress on my various vital organs, which is what happens to diabetics. And left to my own ways, I'm sure I would have done significant damage over the course of the next 20 years. 
I heard about OA from a friend. I went to a meeting, a face-to-face meeting, and that very first meeting, I knew I was home. Um, I knew that I had a disease, and the disease had a name, compulsive overeating. And um, I met some people who reached out to me, and basically they said to me, take what you want and leave the rest. And actually today I am so glad that some people said that to me because I had no spiritual life. I was an agnostic at that time. And um, I really had a hard time with the God stuff. Um, And almost everybody who got up to share talked about how important God was in helping them to maintain their abstinence. I could not relate to that at the time, but because they told me, take what I want and leave the rest, that's what I did. I took the food plan. I bought the OA 12 and 12. I actually bought the big book, but for the first 10 or 15 years, I couldn't relate to the big book. Um, I had it in the house, and every once in a while I would open it or listen to a relevant meeting where they read from the big book. But basically, I was working away as a diet, Um, and it helped me in some degree. Um, But um, inevitably, I would go back to the food, and I basically was what some of us call a chronic relapser. Um, I would have a year or two years or six months, and then I would pick up one of my binge foods. Um, And I was fortunate because it didn't take me long to get back on track. But every time I did that, um, I went through the familiar cycle of shame and blame and... um, embarrassment, and all those negative feelings that come, for me at least, when I would abandon my food plan. Um, I should say that during those first um, 10 or 15 years, let's see, from no, it was only 10 years. The first 10 years from 93 to about 2003, I searched for a food plan Um, that I could stick to without exception. And I believe I finally found one. Um, But what I learned um, within the first two years was even with this plan that seemed to eliminate every possible binge food, um, I was not able to stay abstinent Uh, I guess the longest I had was uh, two years. Um, And I knew there was something else missing, and I kept searching and um, found my way uh, to the the big book study, the Hyannis big book study, which I started and in that process uh, completed an extensive written fourth step And um, I mention this because uh, one of the messages I want to leave today, and this is true for me, and you have to decide if it's true for you, 
um, that I cannot maintain my abstinence unless I actively work the steps on a daily basis. And I came to this conclusion experientially, but I also found support for this point of view in the big book. Um, In fact, uh, I looked over the doctor's opinions in preparation for today, and on page XXIV, um, in talking about Dr. Silkworth, it says, in this statement, he confirmed what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe, that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. So we really are talking about a two-fold disease, a physical allergy and the mental obsession. And um, what's curious about my path is that I got the physical allergy part of it. I really did. By 10 years in, I knew that my uh, road to recovery was sticking to my food plan. What I didn't appreciate was that the greater aspect of my disease was mental. I just didn't get that. I understood that if I stayed abstinent, I would start to feel better. But what I didn't understand was that until I healed my mind in some very important ways, until I let go of old ideas and replaced them with new ideas and new daily practices, I was sure to return to the food. And um, that's what the big book study um, helped me uncover. It helped me uncover my character defects um, of perfectionism, the need to please, um, the self-doubt, the fear, those characteristics that um, I had lived with my whole life which even when I was abstinent would rear their ugly heads and ultimately take me back to that first fight. So it was through the big book study that I really came to appreciate that I could not stay abstinent in the long term without active working of the 12 steps. Um, I thought the answer was the right food plan, and certainly the right food plan is an important foundation. But if nothing else today, I want to say that um, it's not enough. It's not enough for the long term. Um, uh, It was through working the big book study process that um, I realized that I needed a power greater than myself. And um, for anybody who struggled with this the way I did, um, there were many times when I thought I might be one of those who was constitutionally incapable of getting this program. Um, But with the help of many people uh, in a vision for you and elsewhere, um, little by little, I was able to establish a connection with a higher power. Um, And I am absolutely amazed and full of gratitude that I have come to this point. I want to share something with you that I'm not happy about, but um, 
it is part of my story that after working a thorough fourth and fifth step and completing steps six, seven, eight, and nine, um, I was told that I would have to keep working steps 11 and 10, 11, and 12 on a daily basis. I unfortunately um, started to rest on my laurels a little bit and um, found myself just following my food plan, going to meetings, sponsoring other people with their food, but not uh, actively working steps 10 and 11 in particular. And as a result, I lost my abstinence again. And that was um, about uh, over a year ago now when I realized that my problem Um, was that I still was not working on the mental aspect of my disease Um, and that until I worked on that on a daily basis, my abstinence was in danger. In my food program, um, we talk about the importance of planning, protecting, um, praying, uh, and taking care of our abstinence, um, uh, preparing, planning, protecting, and praying. And um, I, those four Ps are really helpful to me because they remind me that it's not just about making the right food choices, which it is, that's very important, but it's also about planning so I have the food I need and protecting so that I don't put myself in situations that I can't handle. And the praying piece is about every time during the day I feel any discomfort, I need to turn to my higher power so that I don't turn to an old habit, uh, which might lead me back to the food. Um, I'm so grateful today because... um, I do understand that, as it says in the um, doctor's opinion, um, unless the person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. So I am working on that psychic change. And for me, it's happening very slowly. But it is now something I know I need to work on every single day, not just when I feel like it. Uh, And for me, it means um, regularly stopping at the first sign of discomfort and um, asking for help from others and from my higher power. And uh, this is quite a miracle for someone who... Um, came into this program at age 43 with um, no connection with a higher power and, in fact, a pretty strong and ingrained belief that there was no such thing as a higher power. So I I am quite sure that um, if I can have the psychic change that I've had, anybody can have if they're willing to start with abstinence and to find uh, a food plan that works, that eliminates your binge food, and that gives you a way of eating, um, combined with daily um, 10 steps 
a thorough fourth and fifth step and so on, um, that it is possible to stay abstinent for the long term. I'm so grateful that I have had a chance to share all of this with you. I um, I still feel like a newcomer in many ways because I it's only in the last year or two that I've really um, come to appreciate that the mental aspect of our disease is equally important, if not more important, because it does persist long after we've maintained abstinence for a while. Um, the two go hand in hand. And um, I think I'll stop there. Um, I hope that I've said some things that are helpful to people who are listening. And um, later on, I'd be happy to answer questions. And with that, I pass. Thank you so much, Kathy. And now I welcome Marjorie to the line. Good morning, Marjorie. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, A Vision for You. And thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Leah, for inviting me to do this. And thank you to all of you people who are listening. Those of you who are east of me could be doing something else because it's a busy Sunday morning. And those of you who are west of me could be asleep. So thanks for being here. I am Marjorie and I no longer experience a hopeless state of mind and body. And the description of that is from the forward to the first edition of the big book. And from time to time, I will refer to the big book, and I'm not going to give page numbers because they're all in Roman numerals for the most part, but I will just say that I will refer to the forward to the third edition, the forward to the first edition, the doctor's opinion, and page 47 in the chapter, We Agnostics, and I might even throw in some ideas from the 12 and 12 in step one. So I live my life going forward, but I see it looking backward. When I look back to 1960, there's an event that happened in my own life, but there's also something that happened in the world quite unknown to me. On January the 19th, 1960, three women who were veterans of dieting met in a Hollywood living room, and they discussed the problem that they were sharing, their dieting and their food and their weight, and they hoped for a common solution. And that three-meeting, three-women meeting is now referred to as the first meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. That same year, 1960, I was a preteen, and I was a lighthearted, chubby little little Marjorie, and I was a pretty obedient little girl. So when I was taken to the doctor, because of my being a chubby little girl, um, and I was subjected to medical tests, which were frightening to me, and then I was given pills that I really had no idea what they were supposed to do, except that I was... I had the sense that something was, was supposed to happen because of these pills, and, and maybe my mom would like me better if I had these pills. So I went along with what happened, and my eating was closely monitored. And what happened was that I was awake throughout the night, and there was nobody to help me, and it was the effect of the pills. And I was scared. I was terrified. I, I, I didn't know what was happening. My mind was racing. And the after effects of those pills caused irreparable damage. Eventually, those pills were taken off the market. 
what I see now when I look back is that I changed at that point from lighthearted, chubby little Marjorie to little Marjorie, who was still chubby, and hopelessness took root in my mind. Sixteen years later, on that same date, January the 19th, but it's 1976, a woman shared with me what Overeaters Anonymous had done for her. And this is something that it talks about in the big book, about recovery begins when one alcoholic shares their experience, strength, and hope with another. And this was where my recovery began because I was in my late 20s and a woman a a little bit older than me told me what OA had done for her. So on two two days later, on January the 21st, 1976, I attended my first OA meeting. And by June of 1976, I was thin for the very first time in my adult life. I had followed a food plan. I would called my sponsor. And what my food plan consisted of was protein, fruit, vegetables, and bread. And by June of 1976, I was thin. And by July of 1976, I was eating just as before. And I look back and I say, oh, there's what the big book means when the doctor, in his opinion, says that the food-addicted life, the alcoholic life, is the only normal one. I went back to my normal ways. 36 years later now, this is what I see when I look back. What the doctor says in his first letter, you may rely absolutely on what these people say about themselves, is absolutely true. You may rely upon what I say about myself because it's my experience I caution you to not rely upon what I say about the big book or other literature or any other outside issue. What I suggest is that you investigate the text on your own, experiment with the instructions, test what you read against your own experience. And then what was helpful to me, and I would suggest it for you, is to follow the instruction that appears in We Agnostics on page 47. It says, When therefore we speak to you of God, we mean your own conception of God. This applies, too, to other spiritual expressions which you find in this book. I found it useful to take that out of context and to ask myself what everything in the big book meant to me, to ask myself what that meant. It made it simple because then I didn't have to distinguish, well, what's a spiritual term and what's not a spiritual term. I could just look at things and say, what does that mean to me? And I would listen and I would read what other people said about what they were reading, what they were discovering. 
But I always also asked myself, or maybe not always, but I would ask myself what those things mean to me. And, and I would try on other people's ideas, and that was valuable to me. So again, looking backward, I see little Marjorie at five years old, and she's entering a big dining room with a big dining table, and it's during the first decade after World War II, And there are two families around this crowded table, and it's early spring, and there are two sets of parents and two sets of kids, and there's a fancy tablecloth and china and silverware. And the two older children, two girls, give a lot of attention to little Marjorie because, well, little Marjorie's the youngest one there. The meal proceeds and the platters are passed. And my mother put a lot of things on my plate that I'd never seen before. And I really liked that yummy matzah, and I liked the apples, and I liked the grape juice, and I liked the mashed potatoes. And then the plate platters are passed around again, and I wanted more. And then after dinner, there's a plate of citrus-flavored candies. They're coated with granulated sugar, and I'd never had those before, and I try one, and I like the red one, so I want another. But there are no more red ones, so I eat the ones that I don't like. And then I ask if we can have those at home. And then I learn that those are only available at certain times of the year. And then the years pass, and I learn that this season, this particular season in the spring, this particular holiday event means sweets and starches. And I love that season. And then years pass, and I was in recovery. I was in the program. And I still love that season because that season now reminds me that I have been freed from the slavery to those sugary and starchy foods. But at five years old, I was at the mercy of that physical craving the physical craving that the doctor's opinion speaks about in two places, on Roman numeral, I think it's 26 and 28. I would have one serving, and then I wanted a second. I was also at the mercy of that mental obsession because I didn't so much think about that holiday during October or during December or during August but I knew when it was coming, and I knew that what it meant were were those special foods. Looking back at Marjorie, chubby Marjorie, who's the preteen, there's a photograph, and I'm standing next to my grandmother. And my grandmother is from the old country, and she's, she's stocky, and she waddles when she walks, And I'm standing next to her, and I'm as tall as my grandmother, and I'm not smiling. I'm wider than my grandmother. My stocky, waddling grandmother is not as wide as little chubby Marjorie. And then there's Marjorie the teenager, and it's late at night, and I walk silently from the bedroom to the kitchen, and I slide the kitchen door closed, and I prepare a batch of fudge, and I melt the dark chocolate, dark chocolate, and I add two cups of sugar, and then I pour in a lot of corn syrup, 
and then I eat it all myself. Or maybe what I've done is I've popped a a ready-made pizza into the oven. Or maybe it's popcorn. Whatever it is, it's all mine, and it's going to get mostly eaten before the night is over. But then there are those nights when I'm quietly preparing my food in the kitchen and my mother discovers me, and she hates how I look. And there are bitter fights and, and, and words that are said that can't be taken back. And I feel dazed and I feel alone And there's nothing that I can do to make her like me. And there's nothing that I can do to stop the eating. I know it will continue. And that's what I recognize as the hopeless state of my body because I simply physically could not get away from those foods. I couldn't stop eating. And that's what the doctor I came to recognize is saying when he says, and this is uh, page 28, I believe, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, or in my case, the food. When I was 19 years old and I was engaged to be married, I was then carted off to Weight Watchers, and I learned how to prepare my lunches. I would fry a hamburger on the top of the stove. I would fry hot dogs, and I would weigh what I was supposed to weigh, and I would eat the grease. And by that dieting, which I did Monday through Friday, I was able to squeeze into my size 22 wedding dress. And then in my late 20s and 30s, I was in OA. And from June of 1976, when I first went back to the food after a period of abstinence until May of 1985, I had food plans from healthcare professionals. I had a vegetarian food plan with lots of carbohydrate vegetables. I had a holistic health clinic's food plan with lots of grains. I went back to Weight Watchers, as I had done before, and I was told to eat in moderation, and I couldn't moderate. My weight fluctuated up and down within a range of 75 pounds, but there was one period of 13 months when I had abstinence. And during that period, I ate protein, vegetables, and fruit. It was simple. But there I was for those nine years, not able to regain abstinence, trying all these different ways, but trying. People said that God would give me abstinence, and I waited, and God didn't give me abstinence, and so I was angry. I couldn't control my eating, and I couldn't enjoy my eating, and I couldn't deceive myself anymore. In 1984, I recognized what it was that had worked for me. After all those years of testing and experiment, I recognized that one time when I had eaten only protein, vegetables, and fruit for that period of 13 months had worked for me. During that period of time, I had relative 
stability in my mind. I had relative stability in my in my body. And my life began to be relatively stable. But there I was still eating, and people from OA would annoy me, and they'd call me and they'd say, we don't need you, but you need OA. And I was reading in those days, I was reading the big book, and I was listening to people in AA. And I began to recognize that the things in alcoholic beverages, the grains, the sugars, the starches, the potatoes, were the same ingredients that I had loved to binge on. That's what I wanted to eat. And I began to ask myself if that was what was triggering my craving. So I began, so during those nine years, I was testing and I was experimenting, and the big book began to make sense. The people who were talked about in the big book were eating liquefied grains, sugars, and starches. I ate matzo noodles, potatoes, fudge, popcorn, pizza, and fermented things. When I abstained from those things, my thinking was clear and I was less obese. Did that mean that I no longer had a hopeless state of body? Well, it meant that I was moving in that direction. So there I am in my late 30s. It's May 1985, May the 8th, 1985. My abstinence began again. Protein, fruit, and vegetables. Ten years later, I'm in my late 40s, still abstinent, and maintaining a 75-pound weight loss. Twenty years later, I'm in my late 50s, still abstinent, still maintaining a 75-pound weight loss. I discovered that some of the foods on my food plan made me feel sluggish and dull-witted. I began to observe what I was doing. I was testing. I was experimenting. Maybe I can go for 30 days without eating that particular vegetable. Now I'm in my 60s. I'm 27 years abstinent. I still maintain a 75-pound weight loss. But I no longer eat foods that contain soy. I no longer eat pumpkin, and I no longer eat winter squash. Those things make me feel sluggish and dull-witted. I enjoy having clarity of mind and clarity of body. And when I read Big Book, when I listen on A Vision for You, I can hear in ways that are much more clear than ever before. And I hear things yet again, but I hear them for the first time. I didn't always agree with others in the program. Sometimes sponsors didn't agree with me. But I was obedient, just as I had been when I took those pills that were given to me as a little girl. I did what my sponsors told me to do. Sometimes it helped, sometimes it didn't. Sometimes sponsors told me I was wrong in what I was doing. I hope that... I am an example to people of what it says on pages 84 and 86, where it talks about sanity will have returned. I hope that's true for me. That's my ambition, and I hope I'm true that I hope uh, I hope 
I'm not deceiving myself when I say that it sounds to me like I fit the description on page 86, where it says, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance, for after all, God gave us brains to use. This has come about as the result of adhering to spiritual principles and a practical program of action. I have the same spiritual principles that you do and the same practical program of action. And I feel so grateful to you for being here, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with me, and for all the times that we've walked together on this road and will continue to walk together on this road. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you very much, Marjorie. And now I welcome Eddie to the line. Good morning, Eddie. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, everyone on the line. Thank you for being here. Um, Thank you for inviting me to speak. Um, I get very nervous when I speak, even though I'm on the phone and I can't see any of you. I I am not a great public speaker, so I ask you to bear with me. I'd like to start this um, my, my talk with just a short prayer um, that is meaningful for me. Um, let nothing disturb you, nothing frighten you. All things are passing. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Nothing is wanting to the one who possesses God. God alone suffices. And when I remember that, my life goes much easier. Well, good morning again. My name is Eddie. I am a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater, and I live in Virginia. Um, Now, I am a Jersey girl by heart. Uh, I am a compulsive overeater and grateful to be here and in recovery today. Um, I'll just share a little about my history. Um, I am the middle child of of three girls, um, that proverbial troublesome child. Although I was not troublesome so much as I was frightful, frightened um, and uh, very um, conscious of the fact that my behaviors uh, were under scrutiny uh, all the time. Um, I grew up in a family. uh, My parents were older when I was born, and um, they were struggling in their own relationship. Uh, My father was an alcoholic and a compulsive overeater, uh, and my mother was bewildered by the entire procedure. my sister, my older sister, is um, was one of. Uh, she was a lovely person. She was very bright. She graduated high school at 16. Um, she was a nurse by 19. She was quite beautiful. People used to refer to her as Elizabeth Taylor. She was quite striking. And I was always trying to live up to that. I mean, she she is a lovely person today. We are quite close. But um, to me, she was my idol. And then there was my younger sister, who was the rebel in the family. Um, who was always into trouble. Um, it would drive my father to pull his hair out, and uh, I was always trying to compensate for her. So I was kind of in the middle and never quite sure um, of where I belonged. Um, as a child, I was quite thin when I was younger because I was sickly um, and um, didn't really start to, to get into that you know chubby thing until I was uh, probably in my late teens or early adulthood. Uh, but uh, food was always important to me, always, always. Uh, I measured the holidays by the foods my mother would cook for the holiday. Um, my mother was an excellent cook. She was one of these people. She could stick her head in the fridge and, you know, come up with two or three things and make a great meal. So food was always very important to me. 
as a child, I was awkward, um, shy, quiet, um, very introspective. As I said, I always felt that I had to make up for everybody else's uh, defects in the family. Um, and my early eating patterns uh, were, as I said, my father was a compulsive overeater, um, and I mimicked a lot of what he did because I just thought that's the way everybody ate. You know, he would eat soup bowls of ice cream um, and, um, you know, just piles and piles of food on his plate. Um, he was a bus driver and was required to pass a physical every year. So we always dreaded that time when um, his physical was coming up because then, you know, he was miserable and we were all miserable with him because he would have to diet in order to get his blood pressure down uh, low enough to pass his physical so he could keep on working. So um, I was always very fearful as a child. I remember that um, on the occasions when my father would not show up at home for a few days, went on a binge, uh, you know, thinking, how were we going to live? What, what, where would we, where would we uh, stay? What, what, would we have money to eat? You know, it was always, it was always a very fearful thing. So I always did anything I could to keep my father happy because I thought that if I was perfect, then everything else around me would be perfect too. Um, as an adult, um, I grew into those eating behaviors. Um, I, I left home when I was 18. I went to nursing school, I, emulating my sister. Um, I got married about, I was 23 when I got married. And um, I took all those behaviors with me. Um, you know, all those, this, that's the only way I knew how to cope. Um, although the, the weight was there, and I had dieted in uh, nursing school and as a, and as a, uh, um, a teenager briefly, but the, uh, the binging and um, dieting cycle began in earnest after I had my daughter. I was 26 when she was born and uh, didn't gain much weight when I was pregnant, uh, but afterwards, um, you know, learning how to cope with being um, a new mom uh, in, the, in the interim shortly before my daughter was born, my, my father passed away and my mother could not um, physically or financially live on her own, so she came to live with us. So um, I had this new child. I had, um, you know, my mom with me, and uh, I don't mean to make my mother sound like a dragon. She was a wonderful individual, but, you know, she came with her own baggage, as I had on my own, my own baggage, too. And that's when the dieting and the binging began in earnest. Um, and uh, I remember the first time my weight hit 200 pounds, I um, went out and bought a new scale because I was sure that my scale was broken. Um, and then, um, you know, I went to Weight Watchers um, multiple times. I have multiple lifetime memberships in Weight Watchers. Um, and uh, I tried pills. I tried shots. I tried laxatives, uh, you know, water pills, uh, whatever, you name it. Probably the only thing I didn't do was the liquid sass because I like to chew. So that, that didn't work for me. Um, I began to isolate uh, from family um, I would use any excuse not to attend family functions. Um, I have a history of migraines. I would invent a migraine, especially if it was my husband's family. Um, and I just didn't want to go. And, and I think part of it was because, you know, I was always a different size when I showed up for a family function, so I was embarrassed by that. Um, I, would, I would create an argument. I would argue with my husband maybe a day or so before a big event and would give me an excuse to stay home. And as soon as the car left the driveway, I'd be in the kitchen uh, cooking up, you know, whatever I had in the fridge. You know, my favorites were I love French toast, and I would make an entire loaf of French toast. Um, pancakes, the same thing. You know, all these starchy things that go on um, and with 
you know, tons of sugar and syrup and, and whatever. Pasta is another thing. And I'd be out there cooking and cleaning, and, you know, cleaning up before they came home so nobody would realize that I had spent the afternoon or evening or maybe even the entire day eating like they couldn't tell by my weight. So um, that continued on and off until about 2004. Um, and two things happened in 2004 that sort of stick out for me. Uh, first of all, I found out about OA through um, a friend I knew at church. And um, I went to a meeting. And um, like most people who go into OA, you know, um, they're looking for another diet. And I was waiting for somebody to give me a plan and put me on a scale and tell me how to eat. And what I didn't want to hear was, you know, let's talk about God. I, I, I wasn't interested in that. I had had some situations in my family that had happened, and my, um, my uh, relationship with God was tenuous at best. So that started um, – the year, in the middle of the year, I, I maybe went to two or three meetings and I thought that, these, that you guys were all nuts and I left. Uh, but in November of 2004, um, my daughter, who was living in Virginia, uh, fell and fractured her ankle. And um, she was unable to bear weight. And um, she has um, a large family at that point in time. I think we were up to we were up to seven. We were up to six. <laughs> we were up to six kids. And uh, so I went down to help her. Now, I have no idea what I weigh, uh, what I weighed at the time, um, but uh, I can tell you that my top weight was probably somewhere around 290. Um, I stopped weighing at about 268, uh, but uh, I know that um, you know, my weight continued to, to blossom after that. But she lived in a two-story home, and I would go up the stairs like a, like, a, like a small child learning how to climb steps. I would go up hand over, uh, you know, I would bend over, and I would put my hands on the steps to get up the steps. And um, I was sleeping on an air mattress in, um, in the living room, and I would have to roll myself off the mattress, crawl to a chair, and then hoist myself up off the, to get off the floor. I had continual uh, body rashes, you know, under my breasts. I had an apron, of course, uh, from the excess weight, and I always had continual rashes. So when I got back from my daughter's, I thought to myself, I, I really do need to do something. So, you know, God gave me the, the gift of desperation, and um, I started out not in a way, of course, you know, we would not do the, no, the most obvious thing first, but I started out with a doctor who was a naturopath, and we were doing the whole supplement thing, um, and he sent me to a counselor who was, you know, certainly not a anywhere um, where I needed to be. But through a friend at church, and it's, it's funny how God actually gives me, you know, gives you just little hits that you eventually wake up to take, um, I found a, a counselor who actually was a 12-step person herself, who was recovered and, and who still worked the steps. And she, she pushed me, pushed me, literally pushed me into the meetings. So on September 15th of 2005, I walked into a meeting in Marlton, New Jersey, and um, desperate enough to finally listen to what they had to say. And uh, I guess looking back, and especially listening to some of our speakers this morning, I was quite fortunate because um, I got it. I got it. Right away. I, I don't know if I would call it a spiritual awakening, but it was certainly, um, or the, you know, the variety, the garden variety, but it was certainly a very quick thing for me. I started out um, with uh, a food plan and a sponsor, 
and meetings, and I just took the ball and I ran. And, and I have not looked back since. Thank you, God. So, you know, here I am in 2012. I am seven years abstinent and um, maintaining a hundred and probably 40 to 50 pound weight loss. So getting to my abstinence here and defining my abstinence, you know, what are my binge foods? Um, and my binge foods are m- most common to, you know, most uh, people in a way. Sugar obviously is number one, but um, also, um, you know, any kind of junk food just doesn't work for me. Snacking is not, a, is not uh, an option for me. I don't eat in between meals. And volume. Volume is a big deal for me. As much as, as sugar is, so is volume. Even after all these years in program, I cannot tell you what a half a cup of anything looks like. I weigh and measure all my food. I weigh in the house. I weigh out in a restaurant. I weigh at any function I go to because I cannot afford not to. I have a food plan which really has not changed over the last seven years with a few minor modifications. It's worked for me since I got it, and I continue to use it. Um, I have a little kit that I take when I go anywhere. It's got my scale in it and a few other little things that I need. And, um, you know, it's just something that I pick up as I leave the house anytime I think I'm going to be out for a meal. Other things that affect my abstinence, living in my fantasy world, I know I've heard plenty of people talk about, you know, they, 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 they adapt these behaviors that allow them to withdraw from life. Um, you know, I can't afford that anymore. I don't um, indulge in those behaviors. I could sit in front of the TV for hours. Um, I love to read mostly romance novels and mysteries, and I limit that. Um, you know, I try to read things that now uh, improve my spiritual life, like the big book and other, you know, uh, OA or AA uh, literature. I try to focus on that because I can't afford those things. Those things just lead me down paths I don't need to be in anymore. And resentments. I try not to live in a resentful attitude. I try to be grateful for everything that comes um, along because I realize that I don't know the whole plan, but God does. And another thing that I find that really impacts my abstinence is, uh, as a friend of mine in program used to say, it's not always about me. I find that I am very hypersensitive and that I can make anything in the world about me, just about anything. So I need to remember that, you know, other people have feelings and that I impact them, even though I don't always re- um, realize it, and I try not to live there anymore. And change. Change is a big thing for me. I am a big believer in the status quo. Don't change anything. So I always find that when change comes along, um, that I have to really look at my abstinence and see what's going on. So I maintain my abstinence, as I said, by weighing and measuring. I follow my food plan every day, no matter what happens. Uh, there's no excuse for, devi- for deviating from my food plan. Um, and whenever I get to the point where I, I love the way I think it's Kim on the line that says, you know, she's not chasing the food um, and she's not trying to deny the food, you know. And I find that when I get there on occasion, that there's something in my life that um, is not what I can accept. And I go right back to that uh, page in the, the big, in the big book, uh, 417, and it talks about um, – how, you know, things are, let me see if I can find that here. I marked it. Here we are. 
and acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me, and I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober unless I accept life completely on life's terms. I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and in my attitudes. And I find that I go to this page a lot, especially these, uh, these past few months have been difficult for me. My sister, my older sister, who's my only living um, relative, has been diagnosed with cancer and is probably dying. And, um, and uh, a very... A person who I'm very close to in program has been struggling and in and out of program, and um, I find I have lost, I feel, you know, when I, when I go there, that I've lost, uh, you know, somebody that I can really uh, be close to and, and share my program with, and, and I find that loss, when I let it go there, almost inconsolable. So, you know, the other day I, I was out, um, and I was um, eating lunch with um, a person who, um, you know, who needs her program, but uh, that's not up for me to say. Uh, but she had uh, on her plate oh, a, ton of, a ton of food, most of which are my binge foods, and I don't go near. And I found myself getting resentful watching her have lunch. And, and I thought to myself, what's going on here? I don't do this anymore. And it was because I was, um, that morning, had been talking to my sister and found that, you know, I was having trouble accepting that, um, you know, she probably will not be with me a whole lot longer. So, you know, I need to just dwell in acceptance. I need to live in acceptance. And that's so important for my abstinence. And other things I do, um, I do meetings. Um, I do, I'm on this meeting probably at least four or five times a week. Well, five times a week is, you know, with Monday through Friday, I, I try not to miss. And when I do miss, I try to get on in the evening and listen. Um, I pray. I start my morning with prayer. Um, phone calls. I try to make phone calls. I have to, I have to admit right here that I don't like to make phone calls. So it's something that I really need to make. I need to push myself to do um, reading, um, service. Um, I try to do service in and out of the program. I volunteer um, at a medical clinic for the uninsured, and I always go with a packet of uh, of uh, literature in my in my wallet. We have, unfortunately, a number of of our clients and patients are. Um, severely obese, um, and I try to share my program uh, with those who are willing to listen. Um, and as um, as each day goes by, I have to say that you know my abstinence is um, something that I wear, uh, just like I would put on a coat, and I'd go out of the house in the winter. Um, I don't, I almost don't even think about it anymore. It's something that um, just is is part of me. It's part of my life. Um, it's probably uh, the most important part of my life, uh, my program, my recovery, my abstinence, of course, they go hand in hand. And um, I would like to close with something that I wrote for another meeting that I was invited to speak at. And it talks about something that, to me, um, is, is so important with my program is the faith in my program, it's the faith in the God of my understanding that, that led me here. So he would just um, bear with me for a few minutes. If I enumerate it, all the gifts this program has given me, we will be here until next Sunday. 
But in closing, I'd like to just share on one thing, faith. Some, of this, some, some may call this spirituality, but for me, it is faith. Faith in the God to keep me on my food plan and abstinent, to give me the grace to handle whatever the day brings and believe that the, he will be here with me. Faith to believe in myself and my program that if I do today what I did yesterday, I will be okay. In AA's big book, we are promised that God will do for us what we could not do for ourselves. My faith has led me here, and I believe this completely and without reservation. Through the 30-some-odd years of fighting this disease on my own, I have never experienced once the peace and serenity that is mine every morning I wake up in this program. I'd like to share with you a short poem that symbolizes for me what faith is. What is faith? Is it that spark of light that comes in the night, that comes in dreams and without speaking seems to say, believe? Yes, that is faith. That fills my heart of what I know but cannot see, of wonders that are but should not be? Yes, that is faith. Is it giving without return or loving without concern or thought of recompense? Is it believing without seeing or acting without fear, a feeling, a sense that all is well and God is near? Yes, that is faith. Strength for the asking, love everlasting, calm in the storm, peace when you mourn, hearts that will mend, life without end. Yes, that is faith. And I thank you this morning for listening to me and for being invited to speak at this meeting. And I pray that all of you will experience the peace and the serenity that this program offers to me every day of my life. Thank you. Thank you very much, Eddie, and thank you to our three speakers this morning, Kathy, Marjorie, and, of course, Eddie, for sharing some of your experience related to abstinence and what we find in the doctor's opinion. Uh, We now give everyone on the line an opportunity to ask any questions of our speakers this morning. Perhaps you have a question about identifying or eliminating your binge foods or Perhaps you have a question regarding what does it mean to have entire abstinence. Any of these questions, of course, on the minds of many. Uh, I encourage you to press star 1 to unmute and pose your question. Thank you. Hi, Leah. This is Margaret in Illinois. Good morning, Margaret. Good morning, and good morning to you three ladies. Oh, thank you so much. It was just a wonderful hour or so, however long it took to listen to. Um, You all did such a beautiful job sharing. Um, Eddie in Virginia, um, I heard you on the line before the meeting, and um, I know that you were nervous, but I wanted to tell you that you did a wonderful job, and um, I was so happy to hear your story. I have two questions for you, Eddie. Um, The first one you mentioned on page 417, and um, I was not sure if, uh, would that be an edition, the third edition or the fourth edition, or is it in both? It's in both, but I'm not sure what page is on. I have the fourth edition, and that's page 417. It's on a different page in, um, I want to say 409, but I don't, don't quote me on that, but I, it is in there. And, the, and the, the name of the story is Acceptance Was the Answer. Okay, thank you. So 417 in the fourth edition? Yes. And you think 409 in the third? I think. 
Thank you. I'll, and I'll, I'll look it up. And my other question is, you had Excuse mentioned me, it's voice. It's 449 in the big book oh, on the thank third you. edition. Thank you. You're welcome. 449, thank you. Um, my other question is, um, you had mentioned soy as one of your um, binge foods or foods that you avoid. Can you explain to me why? I guess I'm not sure exactly why soy is, um, you know, uh, a trigger food for some people. I believe Thanks. that was Mar- I believe that was Marjorie because I eat soy. I don't have a problem. Well, I'm with sorry. It. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, then if Marjorie can again, thank you to all, and I pass. Thank you, Margaret, for the question. Gloria, for coming in on 4:49 um, before I did, and uh, and and Marjorie, would you like to respond to the question regarding soy? Hi, this is Marjorie, and could you please repeat the question for me? Yes, um, you had mentioned in your share that you avoid soy products, and um, I guess I wasn't sure exactly why, um, what it is that soy, um, I'm sure it does something to you, but um, I guess I haven't heard of soy as one of the trigger foods uh, specifically. Thanks for your question, Margaret. It It's something that I observed that I would think about the soy items that I was eating were soy nuts, tofu, textured vegetable protein, and then I also recognized that on a lot of food labels, particularly the conventional um, tuna fish and things, there's soy in them, which is part of the filler. What I noticed was that I would think about in advance, and did I say soy nuts? Uh, I would think about in advance, oh, goody, I'm going to have such and such soy item for dinner or for breakfast, or, oh, I can cook this soy item, and uh, and the way I prepare it, it takes me a long time to eat, and then I can spend a really long, leisurely breakfast on the weekend morning. And I noticed that sometimes I would have plans for the day, and maybe I would eat that soy item for the breakfast, and I would say, well, I don't really feel like doing that, and I would end up just kind of hanging out, and then the day would end, and I would regret, oh, I was going to do X, Y, and Z, and I didn't, so it was affecting me that way, and um, then I began to do a little bit of research outside um reading literature outside about soy. And and that's what prompted me to begin experimenting with what would happen if I abstained from such and such item. And I didn't do entirely all soy items. I just tried it one item at a time. And it eliminated one soy item at a time. And then I turned around and I said, well, isn't that interesting? They're all gone now, and I feel better. That's it for me. Thank you so very much, Marjorie. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Marjorie. Margaret, for the question. Anyone else have any questions for our speakers this morning? This is Susan. Go right ahead. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, everyone, for... um, for your your wonderful shares this morning. Um, I'm addressing this question to each of the three of you. 
I can say that I recognize my physical allergy and I recognize my mental obsession, but I apparently haven't accepted them because while I've let go of some of the foods, I haven't let go of others. And um, I weigh and measure on a daily basis, as many of you do. Uh, And then I sometimes choose to eat those foods, perhaps because the mental obsession lives and then the physical allergy takes over. And for me, it's not a daily thing. It's not something I do every day. But I don't even feel like the – there's a question coming, by the way. I'm just giving a a bit of background. Um, I don't feel that that I'm – as much a chronic relapser as an ongoing relapser because it's not like I uh, have enough time between. It could be a week. It could be two weeks. certainly can't get through the steps in that time. So I work my steps, but you all teach that going through step four, unless you're abstinent, kind of doesn't make sense. So I guess the question is um, about surrendering to, to God. You know, what uh, what gave you each that willingness to surrender? I'm very clear what the foods are. I'm very clear about the problem, just not willing to give them up. And, an, and another speaker had said something about, well, eventually the food will kill you. Well, that wasn't very encouraging, possibly quite true. Uh, although I'm in a slender body, I, uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't take its toll on me. So uh, the, the binges. So my question is, what gave each of you the willingness to surrender, and, and if there was anything other than desperation, I would, love to, I would love to hear it. And I can identify with all the negative effects of it, but it doesn't seem to be doing the trick. Thank you so much. Thank you, Susan. Uh, Kathy, would you like to respond? I, yeah, I would like to, um, because I very much identify with your question. Um, and for years, uh, wanted to stick to a food plan, and my food plan became uh, increasingly um, clean, if you will, and and I little by little gave up certain foods um, over time, but continued to have slips, as we would call them, uh, with certain foods that I had declared not on my food plan with my sponsor, but I would go back to them. And I would have to say there are a couple of things that I did consistently um, that were suggested to me. One was to add to my daily prayer. Um, I would ask God uh, to give me the willingness to abstain from particular foods that were calling to me. Um, so actually the last thing that I gave up was soy flour, um, and um, it was something I really enjoyed eating, um, but I knew that it triggered me, uh, if not immediately, over the next few days. Um, so I just had to keep asking God to give me the willingness to give it up and to be patient, um, because one thing I've learned from the steps is that I change uh, in God's time, not in my time. Um, So I just kept praying. And the other thing I had to do was to really practice patience and acceptance with myself. If I eat on myself, um, it just uh, fuels my desire to eat something that wasn't good for me. Um, but if I was patient with myself and recognized that, that this is all part of learning, 
uh, and adapting my food plan so that it is really tailored to what my body needs, um, that eventually uh, I would come to accept it. And um, I think that combined with actively working the steps. So in this case, if I found myself wanting something that's not on my food plan, um, really asking God to take that from me. Um, So surrendering perhaps many times a day, um, actively surrendering, not just thinking about it. With that, I pass. Thank you, Kathy. Marjorie. Thank you. This is Marjorie, and I love the question. What gave me the willingness to surrender is that there I was in my late 20s when I came into OA, and I had this idea that unless my life ended sooner, I was going to have to suffer until I was in my 60s. That's when life ends, is when you're in your 60s. You just automatically die. Thank God I, Thank God that's not true, because here I am in my 60s. But there I was in my late 20s, and I thought, how am I going to get through all these years until then? And I I really had a an unspoken wish to get it over with soon, because I was suffering so much. And then when I experienced that brief period of 13 months of abstinence, which, by the way, um, I was, it was, it was, it was a form of abstinence. It was not what I'm doing now. Um, I saw that there just might, just might be some reason to enjoy the next 40, 50 years. And so, by the time I was in my late 30s, which is when I got abstinent, continuing, continuing abstinence. I was so miserable that even if the life that I would be living wasn't so great, it was still better than what I was experiencing. So I was willing to settle for a low-grade, miserable life rather than a deeply miserable life. I was trading a really horrible situation for a maybe less horrible situation. That's what my surrender was in part. And then also it had been nine years of being in the food, trying to navigate through this program. And I could see somebody who'd had the same experience with alcohol. I had seen them drunk, and then I saw them sober. And um, and I knew what they had been through. Drunk was the same thing that I had been through. And instead of disappearing from OA, which was normally what happened with people who picked up the food again, they disappeared, I kept sticking around. And I didn't, I just persisted. I just kept showing up. Sometimes I didn't think people wanted me there. They were afraid that I, I was afraid, I was afraid that they were afraid they'd catch what I had, but I just kept showing up. Thanks for listening.
Thank you, Marjorie. And Eddie, please. Hi. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I'm, try, I'm sitting here definitely trying to, to remember or to think of a good answer. Uh, a couple of things come to my mind. First, when, when I first got um, in, into the program, um, someone uh, talked to me about, uh, you know, using visualization. And um, one of the things that I used to do was I would, that, I would visualize myself on this uh, uh, road, um, sort of like the, the yellow brick road in the Wizard of Oz, you know, beautiful flowers, and it was sunlight, and, you know, and um, the birds were singing, and, and I was happy and thin. I've always, always, always thin in my dreams anyway. Uh, but, um, and then um, I was walking down the road, and off to the sides of the road there would be uh, little side paths, and um, you'd go off the side a little bit, and there would be darkness and ugly things, and all the flowers would be dead or whatever. And um, she would say to me, now, the road that you're on, that's the abstinence road. That's the road of program and recovery. Um, and you want to stay on this road and visualize falling off this road back into this ugliness. Um, so that was one of the things I used to do. I, I would literally, you know, think about being on this road um, and uh, trying to uh, imagine what would happen if I, again, fell off into the, into the abyss. Um, sort of like um, uh, I think of uh, a book uh, that I had to read when I was in English lit, uh, you know, Dante's uh, Inferno, you know, the Inferno and you know, in the 12 circles of hell. Um, and that's and that was I mean, it sounds rather graphic, but I mean, sometimes that's what you need. You need graphics, you know, you need something to really say this is where you're going if you keep this behavior up. Uh, and the other thing is, I mean, I don't know how many times when I was first in program, how many times a day I would say the serenity prayer. Um, and I would ask God to take away my food thoughts because I, I didn't know what else to do. And that was the easiest thing I could do that anywhere I was. Um, you know, it did, uh, I didn't need any uh, a book or I didn't need to write or whatever. If I couldn't, if I was out and I couldn't, you know, and, and that always, that was, I always found that helpful. And also I carry in my wallet this little, this little, uh, pamphlet it's called I, I think they still produce it i've had it forever um it's from over uh, oa it's called think first and it's before you take that first compulsive bite remember and it's got like several different things in here that i found helpful um remember that every time we face a situation without eating compulsively it will be easier for us to abstain the next time we can live without compulsively eating except that a bite or two will not make a bad situation better Remember the pain brought on by that last bout of uncontrolled eating. And that was something that, you know, most of us don't remember. We don't remember how miserable we were when we indulged in our, in our food behaviors, you know, how, how terrible we felt not only physically but emotionally, you know, how, 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 much, how many times I felt like I, I had failed again um, and, you know, just made a, a, a bigger mess of what was already a messy life to begin with. Um, and so I, I, I always find I always found that helpful. And share it, or sharing my recovery with somebody else, you know, just share or or sharing my struggles with somebody else, you know. Uh, call somebody and say, you know, I'm having a bad day. I mean, I remember shortly after I got the program, one, it was a Sunday afternoon, and we were home. It was miserable outside. It was not like a day you would want to go out and go for a walk. And all of a sudden, I had this uncontrolled urge. I needed something to eat, and I didn't know where to turn. My husband must have thought I was crazy. He was home at, his, at the computer thinking, I'm sure he thought I was having a nervous breakdown. And I went into my bedroom, and I called a woman whom I had known for years and had only recently found out that she had been in OA for quite a while. And she told me to get the big book out and open it to any page I cared to open it to, and we started to read. And I read on the phone to her 
probably a half an hour until things calmed down and I felt like I was, you know, sane again. And and um, she she was there for me on multiple occasions when 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 things got rough in the beginning. So I mean, those are the things you know you have you have people to call on. Uh, you know, you pick up the phone before you pick up the fork, um, and uh, prayer, and, and that's what works for me. Thank you all so much for your very gentle and wise um, responses based on your experience, strength, and hope. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Susan, for the question and to our speakers. Any other questions this morning? Star one to unmute. This is Jody in California. Jody, go ahead. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, all three of you. What wonderful shares. I heard both Kathy and Eddie say that they weigh and measure, but I didn't hear Marjorie say whether or not she does. Um, I'm wondering, I'm relatively new to a vision for you. And if you do all three of you weigh and measure, should I infer that that is something that is expected of someone uh, to be to call themselves recovered in a vision for you? I'll let Marjorie respond to the question specifically to her, but I want to make it clear that no, <laughs> no, there that is not a prerequisite for uh, recovered on a vision for you. Um, you know, we are refraining from compulsive overeating, and we have been freed from the obsession and the compulsion to compulsively overeat. And the nuts and bolts and the specifics are why we present abstinence panels on a regular basis to to hear from our from our fellows what exactly uh they do in in regards to elimination of their trigger foods and the specifics regarding their trigger substances and uh with that I'll pass it back to Marjorie please go right ahead Hi this is Marjorie and I do weigh and measure all of my food without exception I eat nothing in between and I commit my food on a daily basis to my sponsor. Um, and I will say that during those first nine years when I was in and out of the food, I was weighing and measuring with exception. And um, I, too, as as Eddie spoke about, didn't have any sense of proportions. So I loved going to restaurants because I didn't take my cups and my scales and my measuring spoons, and boy, could I eat um, a big portion. <laughs> and what has what I've been doing since May the 8th of 1985 is weighing and measuring everything without exception. And I'm glad that there is such a wide spectrum in a vision for you of people who do things differently because anybody who wants to can recover. There's no narrow requirement for you must do X, Y, and Z with your food, and I'm so glad for that. Thank you. Hi, this thank is Kathy. Yeah. I want to thank Jody for the question. Yes, go ahead, thank Kathy. You. Yeah, I just wanted to respond as well to Jody's question. Um when I first came into uh, Overeaters Anonymous, um, 
I weighed and measured at home, but I didn't weigh and measure when I went out to eat. And um, that worked for me for a while. Um, And then um, it didn't work for me. Uh, So like what Marjorie said, I think it's wonderful that at A Vision for You, uh, we have a variety of approaches to abstinence. I think for me, the key is um, paying close attention to what works for you personally and to have a sponsor who can guide you through that exploration. It took me a number of years gradually giving up certain foods and gradually coming to to accept that I needed to weigh and measure without exception. Um, But even for all of us who do weigh and measure without exception, we have differences in our food plans. So it really... The, the key is to find what works for you and, that, and to have an agreement with your sponsor um, so that what you commit, you can stick to on a daily basis. Is that okay? Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And again, thank you to Hi, Eddie. this is Eddie. Question. I'd like to respond. Go right ahead, Eddie. Hi. Um, yeah, um, weighing and measuring for me is like when I first came in the program, the meeting that I um, was, well, my home meeting, uh, there wasn't a person in there who didn't weigh and measure. I mean, it was something I actually thought <laughs> was required. Um, I do know people in program that don't weigh and measure. I, I have to say, though, that the majority of people that I do speak with uh, or that I know personally uh, weigh and measure um, and have always weighed and measured. And as I said when I was um, speaking, um, I, don't, I have no conception of size. Um, you know, I, I have no conception of what four ounces looks like. I have no conception of a cup of something. I, I just don't know. I can't. My my mind does not wrap itself around that. And I can make four ounces out of into anything. You know, it, without my scale. So uh, for me, that's uh, it's just one of those behaviors um, that if I don't practice. Um, you know, my abs- I put my abstinence in, in jeopardy. I mean, there's other things that I do that if, if I don't do, um, you know, put my abstinence in jeopardy, um, there's other behaviors that I have. For example, I have a thing where I won't hang around in my pajamas when I get up in the morning because that's one of the things I did when I was into the food where I would, you know, because my pajamas were always loose and baggy, so therefore I could deny how large I was getting. I mean, there's other things that do that. So, um, you know, that's, it's just something that if, if I don't weigh in measure, it's easy for me to then um, leave other uh, necessary parts of my program behind to, to consider them unnecessary too. And so it's, it's just all part and parcel of what it takes every day for me to live in the peace and serenity that this gives me. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you so much. Yes. Um, I just want to comment that, you know, when the alcoholic crawls his way into AA, uh, there is one substance, essentially, that he or she is allergic to, and that substance is alcohol. With the compulsive overeater, it's more complicated. There are numerous foods that we can be allergic to, and what triggers me may not trigger you, and what triggers you may not trigger me. So it is this process of analyzing and identifying our trigger foods as well as our eating behaviors, what was mentioned 
one of them being volume. Volume for compulsive overeaters certainly can be a trigger, hence for many, many people, the necessity of weighing and measuring to attend to that trigger of volume. And with that, I pass. Any other questions this morning on the line? Press star 1 to unmute. Good morning. This is Roxanne. I have a question. I believe I'm hearing two people. Was that Miriam first? Uh, Anne-Marie. Okay, Anne-Marie. Anyone else? Roxanne. Oh, Roxanne. Okay. So let's go Roxanne and then Anne-Marie, please. It's Roxanne. Um, I've been in recovery since 2003, but I'm fairly new to this meeting, and I was just wondering how I could get phone numbers so that I could uh, stay in touch with people between meetings. And we will exchange phone numbers at the end of the recording. Thank you. On to you, Anne-Marie. Good morning, Leah. Um, it's, um, and everyone, it's um, Anne-Marie Recovered Leader. I um, got kicked off the line for a little while uh, due to my own fault. But um, I, So I apologize if these questions have already been asked. But I do have a question for each of the, um, the speakers, and thank you, all three of you. Um, for the first speaker, um, what helped you, um, once you realized that you weren't doing 10, 11, and 12, and that seemed like that was the cause for you to go back and compulsively eat, um, what helped you to get back to 10, 11, and 12? Um, and for the second speaker, um, thank you for mentioning uh, the squash and the pumpkin um, as foods that trigger you. Are there any other particular foods? Uh, you know, I, I just think, you know, that's healthy, um, you know, and I wouldn't think that maybe that would trigger someone, but, you know, I just want to be uh, cautious and was just wondering if there are any other particular foods that um, you have found that would trigger you. And uh, for the third one, um, you, ha um, you had mentioned that you've been on this food plan, I think, for about seven years uh, with only a couple of minor modifications. I was wondering, um, did someone help you with that modification? Um, what, why, why did you need to modify? Um, so those are my, my three questions. And again, I apologize if someone has already asked those questions. Thank you. Thank you, Anne-Marie. First to Cassie regarding steps 10, 11, and 12. Yeah, um, I think what happened for me, um, well, first of all, I lost touch with my original big book sponsor. I had a food sponsor and a big book sponsor, and um, once I got to step 10, I just, uh, didn't call my big book sponsors often and it kind of faded away and it was when um, I had a break in my abstinence that um, I realized I might have to start at step one again so um, I called my big book sponsor finally and she asked me she asked me how I was doing uh, was I actively working steps 10 and 11 and 12? And I was sponsoring people, uh, so that's part of step 12, but I was not doing a daily inventory. Um, and my prayer time was 
if and when I had time. So it was clear I was skimping on steps 10 and 11. And um, right then and there, we reviewed what's involved in a daily 10 steps, what I need to do. It's basically pages 86 to 88 in the big book, um, which gives very detailed instructions on steps 10 and 11. And I just started working them on a daily basis and continue to do so today. So I think anybody who's been through the fourth and fifth and through step nine will find themselves shaky with their food plan. It probably the first place to look is at steps ten and eleven and twelve, um, because that's what keeps us rigorously honest on a daily basis. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Kathy. On to Marjorie regarding the discovery of further trigger foods. Yes, this is Marjorie. Um, I found that artificial sweeteners triggered me, that I craved more. And I'm not speaking scientifically, but um, more humorously in a way, when something that's got artificial sweetener in it hits my body, my liver yells, Yahoo, we've got sugar. That's how I react. I also do not eat all proteins, and I do not eat all vegetables, and I do not eat all fruits. Yes, there are a variety of proteins, fruits, and vegetables that I abstain from. So we can talk about that one-on-one if you'd like. Thanks. Thanks, Marjorie. And on to Eddie regarding uh, how did you, you know, modify your food plan over time and who assisted you in that endeavor. Hi, it's Eddie again. Um, I have uh, my food plan is from um, a nutritionist that um, I had worked with uh, that I found through another OA member. Um, she has um, tried to, uh, you know, sort of refine my food plan. And the only really, really, the only reason that um, I made um, any recent modifications, well, there were a couple things. Um, Early on, when I first started in program, I I started out um, not using any flour at all. Um, I don't have an issue with flour. I I don't consume a lot of it, but um, I am able to have, and I try to stick to um, the whole grains. I don't use any. Now I don't use any white flour because that just it doesn't work for me. But I do use some whole wheat flour. And for when I first started program, I wouldn't eat like I didn't eat pasta for a long time because I always thought it was a trigger food. And since then, I have found that I can have pasta. I don't have it every day. But I do, you know, as long as it's weighted, measured, and part of my committed food for the day, I can eat it. Um, the recent modifications to my uh, food plan were actually done because, um, you know, I'm 66 years old, and um, I guess, you know, your metabolism tends to slow down as you get older. And I do weigh myself once a week, um, and I had started to gain some weight. And, um, you know, like I didn't rush right out and start pulling things out of my food plan because, you know, years ago I was told by somebody that compulsive overeating and the bulimic and anorexia um, issues that uh, some of our members have are just two sides of the same coin. And I find that when I start to obsess about my weight that I find myself on the other side of that coin. So I, I'm very careful uh, with what I, any changes I make in my food plan. I don't do them on my own. Um, so... Um, I had started to gain some weight, and when I contacted uh, the, my nutritionist, 
she suggested uh, modifying some of the uh, amounts of food that I um, was uh, weighing and measuring every day. So, like, I, I took out some of the protein, and I took out um, – a little bit of starch, and I ran all this by the woman who was my sponsor at the time, and then we, you know, I started out there and, you know, just kept an eye on it, and and that's the only modifications really I've made in the seven years um, that I've had the program, um, just to, you know, I I have a a range for my weight, and, um, you know, when it starts to creep up or creep down, but I I don't have any issues with it creeping down, mostly it's creeping up, Um, I, um, you know, I I take a look at if I need to modify not so much the foods I eat because, like I said, everything I eat seems to be okay for me, uh, doesn't give me any cravings, but the amounts that I eat. And, and I'm, I'm assuming that as God willing, when I get any older, I may have to make, uh, you know, more adjustments as, as I uh, climb into that, those golden years that they talk about. So with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you, Anne-Marie, for the questions. Anyone else this morning with a question for our speakers? Hi, this is Natalie from Los Angeles. Good morning. Go ahead. I have a question about eating behaviors. I found a comment about not eating in one's pajamas, um, the speaker who mentioned that. I found that helpful. And I find that for me, eating fast is a trigger. And I just wanted to know if there's any more comments from the speakers about specific eating behaviors. Thank you. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, this is Kathy. I'd like to respond to that. Um, There are a number of eating behaviors that I've had to give up. Um, uh, One is um, eating, starting to eat my meal while I'm getting it to the table. Um, Even though it's weighed and measured, I could start eating from the salad bowl before I actually sit down to the meal. And that just makes the boundaries around my meal kind of fuzzy. Um, So I don't do that anymore. Um, I also have a tendency to eat fast. And the faster we eat, the less satiated we feel physiologically. So I've had to practice putting down my fork between bites and... um, really asking for help in not, um, you know, not doing that, um, not eating too fast. And I still do that sometimes, um, but I try not to. And I, I have also been taught to say the serenity prayer right before I eat um, my meal. And that also helps me settle down and remember that, the abstinence and the current meal, the current abstinent meal is a gift from my higher power. Um, so, you know, I only used to think in terms of the substances I eat, but I also have come to appreciate how important the behaviors are as well. Uh, another one is that um, I have now dele- relegated all of the cleaning up dishes after dinner to my husband so that I can stay out of the kitchen after I finish my last meal for the day as another example. Thanks. 
Thank you, Kathy. Any any of the other speakers like to respond to this question? Hi, it's Eddie. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, hi. Um, I guess um, besides the pajama thing, uh, um, Kathy mentioned I think uh, eating quickly, and uh, that's a that's a habit that I have also. Um, I try to slow down when I eat so I can and chew my food so I can you know really appreciate the taste um, and uh, you know. It, gives your brain time to process the fact that you actually are um, taking in uh, substance. Um, Another thing that um, I find that I need to avoid is uh, when I go food shopping, um, I am, you know, with my list and I am not perusing in the aisles because I find that that's that's a very dangerous place for me to be, you know, walking up and down the aisle thinking, oh, maybe I could have this or maybe I should try that. And so that's, that's a behavior. I tend to avoid, and um, even in um, shopping, as opposed to just being out shopping, there are there are certain um, stores that I will not go in. There's not a whole lot anymore that screams at me uh, when I, um, you know, go through. Like, uh, you know, on, sometimes on, if I'm out at the gym on Saturday mornings, um, you know, I, I pick up those little round things that my grandchildren love to have. And I can go in there and get myself a cup of coffee and come out with their little round things, and I'm fine. But there are other stores that, um, you know, actually one in particular that I will not go in because that from the moment I walk in the door, it takes me back. And I guess that's the situation I try to, be, I try to avoid. It. Those, those places that, that take me back to um, a previous time in my life where those things were important to me. And any situation or place that I find myself in that does that to me, I, I avoid that because um, it's very easy to find yourself drifting down memory lane. Uh, unfortunately, we only remember the good things. We don't remember, you know, the consequences of drifting down that particular memory lane. So, um, you know, I, I find that I avoid those, those places um, that do that for me. And as I said, the, the whole pajama thing, because, uh, you know, I could be, it could be two or three o'clock in the afternoon some days, and I'd still be in my pajamas. And my excuse was that I was too busy to stop and go get dressed. And really what the excuse was, was that none of the clothes in my closet fit. So therefore, I stayed in my pajamas because they did fit. Or I didn't want to go up into my attic and get out one of these 17 huge Rubbermaid bins of clothing that I stashed up there that ranged in every size from, I don't know, 8 to 24, depending on where I was in my, in my current binge cycle, that, you know, and bring them down and, and put them in my closet so I actually had clothes to wear. Because if I didn't do that, then I could, I could continue to deny the fact that, you know, I was taking, taking myself back down that um, awful dark place again. So with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Eddie. And I'd like to say just a few things. Rather than doing, focusing, it's a little easier for me to say what it is that I do rather than what it is that I don't do. My very first sponsor, the one that I had during this period of abstinence, told me to choose the foods that I enjoy. And I still hear that echoing in my mind. And... um, from the food plan, I choose the foods that I enjoy. So if some food one day I enjoy it, that's the day that I choose it. But there are some times when a food that I enjoy in April, I don't want to be within 10 miles of it in December. So I choose what I enjoy. I choose my companions, and I choose my attitudes. It's 
the behavior with regard to the food is probably 10% of what it is that I'm doing. 90% of what it is that I'm doing is what I'm doing with the rest of the steps because that's where I get the power to choose what I do, to choose my companions, to choose my attitudes. Thank you. Thank you. I just want to thank you all of it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Any other questions this morning? Topic is abstinence. Hi, this is Linda from Connecticut. I have a question. Go ahead, Linda. Um, I apologize if it's already been asked. I couldn't find the phone for like 40 minutes. I, anyway, um, I've been told that it's not possible to be a vegetarian and, and be uh, be abstinent. It's not healthy. And I was told this by my sponsor, who was a very caring and able, uh, you know, able-minded person who knows a lot of stuff. But I just wonder, because in my heart I am a vegetarian, and I wonder if anybody has any thoughts about it or knowledge about it. Thank you. I pass. Thanks, Linda. Any speakers like to respond to that question? It's Marjorie, and I would like to respond. The The way that I eat back 20-something years ago, there were advocates who said this is the right way to eat, and there were people who said if you eat that way, you will die, you will experience... Um, they mentioned some pretty horrible symptoms, um, and I made a decision at that point. When I found out there was this one way of eating that, that worked for me for a period of 13 months, I decided that I was going to take the chance and I was going to risk those bad consequences. I never actually knew anybody who had those bad consequences, but that's what people were telling me. And... I know that there are vegetarians who are abstinent, and um, so here I am. I haven't experienced the bad consequences that people warned me about. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Linda, for the question. Perhaps some further conversations offline would be helpful to you. Any other questions on this matter of abstinence this morning? Hi, this is Andrea from North Carolina. I have a question. I'm a compulsive overeater. Go right ahead. I am working on becoming recovered, and I'm a mom of small children who are not compulsive overeaters, and I'd love to hear feedback or advice from the panelists or even Leah about preparing food that is not on my food plan for my children and what suggestions you might have. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Speakers, anyone like to respond to that question? Uh, yeah, this is Kathy. I'd like to respond to that, Andrea. Um, when I first got abstinent, I had a young child at home, and um, 
the sponsor I had at the time uh, encouraged me to uh, be very clear about what's my food and what's their food. Um, and that has worked for me to this day. Um, my son is out of the house, but I still have a husband who eats non-abstinent foods. Um, and it's just become quite routine. In some instances, he now eats more like I do, um, which is great. Um, but I also know other people in program who, at least in the beginning, uh, asked their family members, especially their spouses, to support them in keeping certain foods out of the house because they triggered them too much. So again, my answer is, what do you need in order to stay abstinent? And if you need um, for certain foods not to be in the house, then that's a legitimate request. Or if you can keep certain parts of the cupboard for your food and certain parts for your children, um, that may work for you as well. I, again, I don't think there's one answer to that. I think it really depends on each of us figuring it out with the help of our sponsor. And that pass. Thank you. Any other speakers like to respond to that question? I'll take that as a no. <laughs> uh, thank you for the question, um, Andrea. I mean, regarding you know abstinence with children is obviously something we can discuss further another time. But uh, you know, basically, uh, there are days where I cook my family for my family uh, exactly like I am eating myself, um, you know, just larger quantities that everybody can enjoy, uh, you know, healthy protein, vegetables, fruit selection, et cetera. Um, I may put uh, one or two items on the table that um, I don't partake in because it is a trigger for me. Um, and then there are days where I will cook, uh, you know, the common food, kid-friendly foods, um, that I obviously don't eat ever um, because they are definite triggers for me. So, um, you know, this is something that, um, you know, the weighing and measuring, yes, I weigh and measure, and all the things I do in order to um, prepare for my abstinent meals, this is something they're witnessing and something they know of and something uh, they're well aware of for me. Um, but um, you know, I I certainly cook a whole wide range of foods for my family that that are not on my food plan. So, um, more specifics than that, we can certainly discuss another time. Um, any other questions uh, for our panelists this morning regarding abstinence, the specifics of abstinence, elimination of our binge foods, uh, identifying and analyzing what those foods are those uh, types of questions this morning.
My name is Ann, and I would like to ask, I appreciate the panel. They were just wonderful. I'd like to, have they ever discovered that in, throughout their life at one time something was a binge food and later it isn't? And I don't mean we really kid ourselves because I've done that. But I really find that I can overeat vegetables now. I mean, mm-hmm. very into healthy eating. And um, certain vegetables are triggers. But I'm asking about different stages of life where one time it's a binge food and another time it isn't. Hi, this is Eddie. I'd like to respond to that. Go ahead, Eddie. Yeah, that actually has happened for me. Um, I think I mentioned earlier about the pasta. Um, When I first got into the program, I would have, you know, I didn't touch anything like that. Um, But over time, I found that um, I was able to eat, as I said, you know, uh, on occasion. um, And as long as I weigh and measure, I'm okay. Um, When I was in Weight Watchers, and I don't know how many times you've been in Weight Watchers, you know, or if you've ever been in Weight Watchers, but there's always a thing about the free foods and the points. And and like you, um, you know, I can overeat on anything. But, um, you know, carrots were raw carrots. I remember um, I, I worked um, in, um, in a hospital, and um, I frequently worked until 6.30 at night. And so um, on the way home, I would stop at the supermarket if we needed some things for the house, and I would always, always, always come out with a bag of those little baby carrots that I would immediately open when I got in the car and put between my legs as I drove home. And when I got home, the entire bag would be gone. But I would be okay with that because carrots were, after all, healthy, and they were a free food. So, you know, it never occurred to me that um, I needed to put limits on everything, not only, you know, those things that I knew were definite issues for me. So today there is no free food for me at all. I mean, I weigh and measure everything. Um, Another thing was, um, uh, let me see, Uh, Certain proteins uh, I would not eat. I can, for example, I would not eat ham when I first started the program because I like ham and it would it, and it would just trigger me. Um, there are now I, I do eat ham on occasion. I mean, you have to find the ham that doesn't have any sugar added to it when they cure it, which is not easy to find. But you know, when I do find that, I do have some, and, and it doesn't and it doesn't trigger me anymore. Um, I don't know why it doesn't trigger me anymore, but I knew I do know that I have found over the years that, um, you know, I can include certain other things in my, in my food plan um, that uh, were, are no longer triggers for me. Um, there are certain things that I can't, like I mentioned earlier, white flour. I don't do white flour because even though other, other whole grains are okay with me, white flour um, still is a trigger. And, you know, it's not, it, it, it has no nutritional value, so why would I bother with that anyway? Um, and uh, there are certain things that um, I, I tend to stay away from um, because I find that not necessarily that they trigger me, but I find that, uh, like I think it was Marjorie that mentioned earlier, uh, makes make her uh, like restless and, and discontent uh, after she's had them, um, looking for that, oh, maybe there's a little bit more left. Uh, and off, off, offhand now, of course, none of them are coming to mind, but um, you know, those are things that, that initially maybe started out on my food plan but are no longer part of it because of that reaction that they do evoke in me. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Eddie. Anyone else on the speaker panel like to respond to that? Okay. Any other questions this morning? Star one to unmute before we wrap up here.
going once, twice, and three times. Well, thank you to everyone who attended this abstinence panel this morning, and of course, thank you to the speakers, Kathy, Marjorie, and Eddie, who offered their time and their efforts in sharing their experience with us regarding their abstinence and matters discussed in the doctor's opinion. We thank you. And, of course, thanks to everybody for your questions that were posed. I'm going to read from page 164, the way A Vision for You closes its meetings, and it goes as follows. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.